Michigan criminal defense attorney Bill Amadeo is standing by in cell block S. The jail visit starts now on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I am Bill Amadeo from... I know you hate this part. Live audience hates this part, but man, he takes so much pressure off me. From McManus and Amadeo, and Grayborn Associates, and the Shiawassee Six, and tonight we're going to talk about what was the topic again? Yeah, old friends in different places. All right, this will be like a throwback. Now, this is not the requested live, Emily Thomas. Wait for that one. It's coming tonight. We're just talk about some things from the past. I gotta get more content done. And, um, yeah. You want more content done, right? Yeah, he's been... The live audience has been demanding live content. One day, we're gonna do a live about you. You won't be liking that, will you? The live audience is absolutely amazing. And I swear... You know, Matt McMass and I were talking today about a crazy case. And, um... I gotta tell you. How did we become the voices of sanity? I think... If the Pope had my cell number right now, he would try to give me shit. I'm amazed. Utterly amazed. Like, people you're cool with, people you care about, are, like, losing their mind in text messages right now. And I'm sitting there like, huh. Okay. And I'm trying to bring it back down to earth. And then I, you know, you're tired and you get into the banter. And that's what tonight's all about, the banter. So let me, before we get into this, because they're actually, one's a really sad tale. And one is a really cool tale. And last night, when Aaron Abera posted that song by Bailey Zimmerman, Aaron, if you're out there watching, that got me thinking about this blog tonight. Because I have two friends, and we have similar attributes, right? These two friends I'm talking about tonight. And we were both from the same geographic area. And... The thing about life and the thing about love is you don't know what's going on inside somebody's mind. And there's two songs that just hit really hard right now. That Bailey Zimmerman song really made me think about two of my old friends. And there's a song called Let Me Go by Three Doors Down. I'll post a video later. If you have not heard Let Me Go by Three Doors Down, it's a powerful song. But the video to me was even more powerful. Let me tell you about it. And I said, we will post, but... It's like 2005. I'm in like my third or fourth term of law school, and I went out and I bought the CD, because she had CDs in the car back then. And this song just stood out from the crowd. And the video was even deeper. Because the video's about this girl, and she's got this high school crush. And they are into each other, and they're happy. But he doesn't know her whole story. And that's the thing. How many people really know the whole story? And how many people want to know the whole story? That's a fascinating dynamic. But she's this pretty girl, he's this good-looking guy, and they are in high school love. And one night she pulls up to the strip club, because she's a stripper. And he sees her there, and he goes, what are you doing? And, like, the bouncer outside pushes him away, and she goes in and she strips. And she goes back to school the next day. And she sees him, 
and he's like trashed her reputation. He's belittled her. And she's totally devastated, broken hearted that he's lost interest in her because he saw her strip. And at the end of the video, you see her give this woman money and you see that she has a baby. And it's very clear at this point, she was stripping to support her child. She was a teenage mother. And this kid from the suburbs never put two and two together. And not only did he diss her, he destroyed her reputation in school. And that's the fascinating thing to me. I'm sitting there and I felt bad for this girl in this video. You're connected to this song. You don't know what somebody else has been through. And he was judging her for stripping at this club. She was trying to feed her child. She probably didn't have the emotional support and sort of the financial support that he had. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's been on both ends of that spectrum now, from the inner city to the suburbs, it just fascinates me how we miss the whole picture. We miss things about people. He didn't want to be with her anymore. Did he have to, like, belittle her to the whole school? And at the end of the day, he's going to have his good life because he's got financial security and she's going to be struggling. She's going to have dreams about him at the end of the day. And then I see a guy like that in court. I just want to rip his throat out. So I feel like I'm defending her. It's just weird. You know, I hate how the suburbanites don't understand what the people in the inner city have been through. And as somebody who's been in that inner city, God, it's just fascinating. And that song always, it broke things down for me so much. Because now, at this point in my life, I'm in my fourth term, third or fourth term, and you knew now, active probation was over. You knew that as long as you kept working, you were able to sit for the bar exam. And I felt like I escaped. And you start looking at people differently. You start looking at people very differently. Because now, like, a lot of the girls and stuff that were from the suburbs look at you differently. You have a house in the suburbs back home in Jersey. And you're doing well in law school. And you got all this shit together. But you're still that same inner city kid. But you don't show that side to them. You don't show yourself to them. And that is really what today is about. Showing yourself. You know, showing yourself, man, it's vulnerable as hell. It's dangerous. And where we're from, and the two people I want to talk about today, being vulnerable, it's terrifying. Somebody puts a gun in your head, we'll deal with it. Somebody stabs you, fight back. But to actually let your guard down, that's terrifying. Not the gun, not the knife, but the actual emotional vulnerability scary stuff and I thought to myself wow everybody's really looking for these people that they can connect with this is how cults are built this is how gangs are formed you just want to belong and the two people I want to talk about today one who's no longer with us and one who's doing okay we came from the same difficulties we came from a background that was dangerous and we had to have like this hardness about us to survive that time period. The first guy, he was talented. 
really good at art, and I gotta tell you, a guy who's good at art living in the ghetto is not always accepted. And there were questions about his sexuality, and I gotta tell you, the 90s in Ducktown and the surrounding areas, if you were a gay male, that was something you hid. And I think he liked men and women, because we'll get into a story about this girl, but he was lonely. Always lonely. And him and I had a different outlook on things. We had different families, right? We were both poor, but he lived a few blocks away from me. And um, his neighborhood, not good, but better in our neighborhood. And sometimes we used to walk home together until he got to his point. I had to go a few more blocks. And this kid was an absolute computer genius. He could write code. He could have made millions and millions of dollars. And he was a geek his whole life. Was an athlete had this edge about him, which we had to have, he wasn't tough. He didn't fit into the suburban clique. He didn't fit into the jock clique. He didn't fit into any clique. And he was somewhat of a loner. And about 18, he found a clique. And it wasn't good. He started working in the casino. He started using drugs. And he lost himself. And that one unique talent he had, well, two unique talents, the art and his computer coding, it went to the wayside. And he really got involved with drugs heavily. We worked at Tropicana together for a minute. I was a bar porter. He was a busboy. And when I would see him in the cafeteria, it was just weird. Because he was always high. Eventually, he took a job at Boscov's, where I worked as a kid, and I would see him there, and we would talk. And the Alki brought us together. The Alki was this amazing place, right? That's where I learned to box. It was survival in Ducktown. It was a place of safety. And him and I would hang out in the Alki. I was in college at this point. He was working at Boscov's. We would just shoot pool and talk about life. And, you know, we weren't really friends. But we had a bond. The bond was we were two of the only white kids from our neighborhood. And we both made it through that. We were going different directions. I was going the route of education, and he was just going the labor route. And he found this wild group he did drugs with. Then he turned it around. He just turned it around. And I said to him one night, the Alki, we're sitting there watching a game. And I said, you know, you're such a talented guy with a computer. Why don't you push that? And I always have some guilt about this. I told him to push the computer and push the art thing. Because this kid has talent in both. And I said to him, and this was a mistake, I guess, but it was in good intentions. You know, they may not give a shit about your art here. You know, a place like New York. Maybe they would. So I put that idea in his head. And he's like, you know, maybe I'll go to New York. Go for it, dude. 
Get away from this bullshit. You don't need these people. They're not real friends anyway. And if art's where your heart is, and computer's where your heart is, you know, there's going to be pockets of people in New York that are just going to accept you. Now, I was never that cultured, you know? To me, my way out was just flat-out education and work ethic. I didn't have the talent like he did in these areas. But I encouraged him to just go for it. And he did. And I saw him when I the Alki, and um, he was in a suit and tie, and he had a big meeting with a computer company out in New York, and he was doing stuff with his art. And I was happy, because I felt like, you know, I played a role in that. And here's how I was doing. I'm like, well, I'm trying to take this LSAT, and I'm doing well in school, and I'm working full-time in the casino, and I'm really proud I just got Aunt Mary on this house in Ventnor. But we kind of bonded there for a minute, you know? And I was so happy for him because here he is. He seemed happy. The computer talents. The art which was a passion. He met people he liked in New York. He turned the corner. And part was like, you know, one day I'm going to turn that corner like that. I'm going to do it differently. But good for him. This pound, you know? thing is this, you all got these needs inside, right? Got these internal things, these things that make us tick. We connect with people, and it doesn't make sense at times, right? We connect with people who may not seem like they're the people we should be connected with in the real world. But I think at the end of the day, what this guy wanted, he just wanted to find love. And he met this girl in New York. And this is where a little bit of a guilt trip comes in. Now this girl was extremely religious. And he explained that to me one day when he was talking about her. So, and he wasn't religious, you know? But he was like, no, she's really religious, but I'm going to become religious for her. And you know, guys, I think religion is a good thing that works for you. But when you start changing yourself for somebody else, you lose yourself in their identity. And I was concerned about that. But he told me how he was in love with her, and she's the one. And, you know, he really wasn't that successful woman before her. And she was a real pretty girl, and they connected on some levels. And I'm like, cool. The thing about this real religious girl, which was a contradiction, what she liked to play with cocaine. She would be praising Jesus in one breath and rolling up a line in another. And I knew he was involved in the drug scene. He kind of turned the corner on that. And let me tell you something about the drug scene back home. Nobody ever used drugs in front of me in my cliques. It just didn't happen. They knew I was just not about that. But they did stuff behind their back. And, you know, I always was told that people try to put their best foot forward with me. Bill doesn't drink like that. Bill doesn't drink at all. Bill doesn't use drugs. I don't want to do it in front of Bill, but they weren't really being themselves. I mean, if he wanted to use drugs, I'm not one to judge other than, hey, here's the dangers. I'm not trying to go off like a holy roller, but he gets involved with her. And as he's trying to find religion with her, he starts using drugs with her. And... At this point, the fear is, 
he's wrapped himself in her identity. But he needs to be in New York to be who he is. So he's going back and forth between New York and Atlantic City. And we lose track of each other. We go our different ways, right? And I don't know what's happened to him. This wasn't like the texting era. We didn't really call each other much. Scooting for him. And one day, I come home from law school. And I park in the back of the Alki. Q and I go to the Alki like old times to hit the bag a little bit. And um, we go to the back door. Because you parked in the back and you went in the back door of the Alki. And there's this body laying in front of the back door of the Alki. And I look down like, holy shit, it's my friend. What are you doing, dude? He's got, like, needle marks up and down his arm, and he's sleeping on the ground. And I'm just in shock, and I'm like, come on, dude, let's get you up. Let's go inside. Let's get you some food. Let's just talk. And we're talking about life. We haven't seen each other in a few years. And um, he said, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm in law school. It's my fourth term. I'm back from term break. So what happened with the art? What happened with the computer? And he was still trying to do these things. But he tells about this girl, and they've been off and on for years. And he's using the drugs with her, and he's working odd jobs. He's taking money to go buses back and forth to New York. And he said something really powerful to me. It will stick with me forever. I said, you're too good for this shit. You need to find what you love. To go for it. It's not the computer stuff. It's not your art. I don't know. But you are a talented individual. You're too good to be laying with track marks on Mississippi Avenue. Crying over this woman. It's bullshit. You're better than this. Let me help you. And he said to me, this was the last time we ever spoke, you love law school. That's what you love. You love the idea of getting the hell out of here. You love the idea of proving people wrong. These are the things you love. And I respect you for that, babe. I really do. He goes, and I'm sure, long after I'm gone, and it's almost like he knew he was going to die soon, you're going to do really big things. Just that you're never going to understand what I'm dealing with right now. And I want to learn. I said, what are you dealing with? You love law school and your image. I love her. And it's the first time I've ever felt anything like that. I don't want that feeling go. And I'm like, bro, she's not worth this shit. And he's breaking down. Here's this tough kid, quasi-tough at least, crying his eyes out in the living room of the Alki. Track marks up and down his arms. 
and tell me how he has to get her back. And I just sat there with Q, and we looked at him, and we don't know, this is a bit of our pay grade at this point, right? What do you tell somebody in this situation? You're better than her, you don't need this shit. You shouldn't use drugs, you're a talented guy, you're an attractive guy. I mean, is there any magic words? Is there any magic formula right now? Gave him some money, gave him a ride. A couple terms later, I heard he was dead. Overdosed. Part of me was confused over this for a while. I told him to go to New York to chase his dreams. And he was miserable back home, you know? Just miserable back home. He was going back and forth between New York and Atlantic City. But he was not happy where we were. None of us were, right? But sometimes I think to myself, you know, you should just keep your mouth shut. Who the hell are you to tell him to make a move like that? It was all the best of intentions. But I wonder if he didn't go to New York and he didn't meet her. He didn't become so enthralled with her and he wrapped himself to her world. Maybe he'd be alive today. Maybe miserable in Atlantic City, working in the casino against his will. Probably go for it. And I think in life, people don't gamble on themselves enough. And I gotta tell you, at that point in my life, gambling myself was the only option. Before I went off to law school, I wanted to make sure Aunt Mary and Mom had enough money to support themselves, come close to paying off the mortgage. I didn't go to law school right away because I was working so hard to make sure they were financially supported. Once I felt there was enough financial support for those two, I had to go. And my greatest fear was if I didn't take a shot on that, I was going to hate myself. But in a lot of ways, as selfless as I am, and I'm a pretty selfless person, I was selfish about my goals very selfish what makes you tick and I think back to another close friend who came from a very similar situation as a year or two older than us and I watched this guy with such admiration because as bad as my neighborhood was he lived several blocks down several blocks north and his neighborhood was worse I mean, when I tell you they were poor, like, we were poor. We looked like friggin' Bill Gates' family compared to them. Food was always in question. Soap, deodorant, was the shower going to work in the projects they were in. And he didn't have the love in the house that I did. And he's somewhat successful today. And he's somebody who I still call a good friend. But he ended up in a really bad marriage. Because he found someone who he just clicked with. And the person he clicked with was just a bad person. I mean, look, man. I'm not a relationship counselor, okay? I'm just not. And... I think Stevie Wonder could have saw how dangerous this woman was. There was red flags upon red flags. 
But for the first time in his life, he was told it's okay, and he was just accepted for being himself. And what she did was she controlled this poor bastard. Eventually they got divorced. We found somebody who's much better, but we talk a lot on the phone, and when her name comes up, he goes, you know, I don't get it. I don't understand I could end up with her, and I do. It was an emotional escape. The turmoil that we felt growing up. There weren't a lot of us, you know. There just weren't a lot of us. A lot of white kids from the hood. It just wasn't an abundance. So even if we weren't friends, we had some kind of connection. A high and by, or your closest friend in the world. They span from those two spectrums. And I look at my friend who overdosed. I look at my friend who ended up in this bad marriage. And I look at me. And I think both of those guys temporarily were much happier than myself. But I had this feeling, this feeling of completeness, this feeling of getting in that car and going to Michigan and rolling the dice on everything. It just made sense to me. And I wonder if I would have ended up with the people that I cared about back then how that would have altered the game. I was gone, man. It was time to go. And I look at these two individuals who, in my opinion, far more talented than me on so many levels. We all got these needs. We got these needs to be loved and these needs to be accepted and these needs to just fit in. And I think at some point in my life, those needs became secondary or non-existent. And with these guys, while they may have forgotten about those needs, it was like breathed back into them. And they completely embraced themselves into this other individual. Let me tell you something, guys. And I mean this with all due respect to everybody watching. You may have the best relationship in the world, best husband in the world, best wife in the world, whatever. If you lose your identity in somebody else, when that other person becomes your entirety, you are setting yourself up for failure and emotional turmoil. When you lose sight of that thing that breathes that fire into you, bad stuff's gonna happen. It just is. I wish my friend who's gone and overdosed would have really just focused on his art and his computer coding. But they have different personalities. And, you know, life. Everybody could hit the fastball if it's straight, no matter how fast it comes at you. What makes you different is when you could hit that breaking ball. 100 mile an hour fastball with no movement can still be hit. It's the junk pitches in life that throws stuff off. And when you strike it out because you can't hit that curveball, the key to success is getting back up, adjusting the bat, 
choking up and going to the opposite field. Modify your game for you, not for anybody else. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Live audience. I love the live audience, but they do not share the same work ethic as myself. So, today... Two things hit me, and it made me want to talk about Scruffy. And Scruffy was one of my dogs growing up. Little Maltese Terrier. And I'm going to tell the tale of Scruffy tonight. And I want to get this one out, because I've been thinking about Scruffy, listening to some old music. And, you know, life got these, you know, these roller coaster rides. And um, Scruffy saw it all. I'm going to tell you about how I found Scruff. I want to tell you about the end with Scruff, and it was so profound. Great little dog. My aunt adored Scruffy. We'll get into that. Before we start with that, I want you to remember something. I had one of those aha moments tonight. One was a serious moment, and one was a funny story I'll share. If Nancy Gordon's out there, I'm going to little dual mock at her. I'm coming from Lenaway tonight, right? And it was a long day in Lenaway. And what you have to do is you drive back home. I had a Zoom call. And on the Zoom call on my phone, before my Zoom call, I want to tell a funny story to a friend of mine. Now, in the field of law, especially criminal defense, it's really weird I'm prosecuting these DHHS cases right now. It's a long story. But Danielle Cattery is probably up there in heaven like throwing tomatoes at me and mocking me. And I want to tell her a funny story today. And I go to call Danny and I realized, oh, she can't pick up. And it made me think about friendships. We think about bonds. You know, connections and bonds in this world are so rare. There's so many people that come to our world that we're cool with. I look at my life and like, there's so many people that I either do things for or have hooked up or do this or do that. But there's very few people that really have gotten to know the real me. And Mike Picotney, we were talking last night. I appreciate your words, Mike. because you're like a big brother to me. I'm using these blogs as a way to try to show pieces of myself because I just feel comfortable a little more peeling this onion. And it hasn't been an easy journey to peel because, you know, where I'm from and all that. But I'm trying and... These old stories are coming back to me. And Scruffy, Scruffy was just special. We'll get to him. I will give a shout out to Nancy Gordon today. I'm in between Lenaway hearings. And I stopped to get a quick lunch. I'm trying to get a quick salad across the street. And there is Nancy, my close friend forever. Tamaris, her friend, who's a damn good lawyer. And this other woman that works with Tamaris. And I walk into the restaurant, and I pull up next to them. So what's going on, guys? So let me buy your lunch. Let's just sit down and talk for a few minutes. Nancy says, no, Bill. You don't have to buy our lunch. I said, no, I want to. 
Tamaris hands over the check. So here you go, Bill. And she calls the waiter up and says, I'll take a piece of cherry pie to go. You got to know Tamaris. You just got to love her. And I said to Tamaris afterwards, do you want to order some silverware to go to? It was funny. Had to be there. Anyway, some good people in Lenawai. Love Nancy Gordon. Let's well, about Scruffy. There's a reason we say that Dog is man's best friend. And let's just face it. I think dogs are better than people. I mean, would you agree with that? Dogs are amazing. I'm a big cat person, too. But, man, there's something about a dog. And the story of Scruffy Neary. Neary is my family's name. Amadeo is my father's name. But the Neary's raised me. I was very close to being Chris Neary as opposed to Bill Amadeo Jr. That's a story for another time. But um, the Neary's raised me, and the Neary's were animal lovers. Big-time animal lovers. And that was a trait instilled in me from the earliest of ages. And we always had animals from the first day of my life. In fact, there's never been a day in my life I have not had an animal. It's been different numbers of animals. But animals have always played such a vital role in my life. Turn animals for support. Treat the animals like gold. I can remember being poor. And I would get my cat's tuna. Before I would get a food I liked. Now today. Like Teddy. He's treated like a prince. My animals were always treated great. But obviously as you move to the suburbs and stuff. They have different desires and needs. And the great thing about Scruffy was he was a dog from the ghetto who ended up making it to the suburbs and we'll start how it all began. I'm in eighth grade and I am trying to work out really hard. I'm playing baseball back then a lot and um, I'm running around the block and it's a dangerous neighborhood. I was doing my runs and my sprints and I was always doing this real early in the morning. Was boxed a little bit playing baseball and you had your road work to do and it's real early in the morning and it's a bad neighborhood okay we're in Ducktown, but i did my run had my headphones in boy so much has changed there right and there's this little tiny white maltese terrier and he's yapping and he's really yelling and um i just assume it was people that owned him and he was just outside getting air or something. He's tied to a pole. And I go up to him and I pet him and he's sad. I go, what's wrong, boy? And these people come walking down the steps. I said, hey, is this your dog? It's like, nope. They walked away. And it was kind of a warm morning, right? And, uh... I had like a water bottle, man. I gave him some water. He was really thirsty. I pet him goodbye. I'm like, all right, man, I'll see you later. And I went for my run. I went home, walked my dog Odie, did my thing. And um, I went for a walk a little later. And it's a few hours later. And there's this little dog still there. And he's crying. And I'm looking for name tags and this and that. And he was left astray. Some assholes left this little dog tied to a pole in the hood. Just let him fend for himself. No food, no water, this little pup. 
and I'm pissed. And I untie him, and I walk him home, and you would have thought like we were best friends forever. He came with me, and right from that point, and we'll learn that Scruffy became quite arrogant over the years, but there was always that bond. It was like I saved him. He was lost. He was sad. He was thirsty. He was hungry. And I took him home. I said to Aunt Mare, they left this little dog here, and I don't know what to do. And Mom was bitching, ah, oh, we can't afford another animal. This is ridiculous. It's cold a pound. And when Aunt Mare saw Scruffy, I don't know if you believe in love at first sight, but I want to tell you right now, those two connected. And right then, that was her child. There was no option to give Scruffy to the pound or whatever. She wanted Scruffy from that point. And this little stray dog we took. And Odie, our old boy, he was not thrilled about this. Because Odie was king of the castle. We'll talk about him another time. Great dog. But here's his little brother. And he is very jealous and very insecure. Scruffy was this little tiny, like, snowball. You know the Maltese Terriers? It was a little tiny mutt, right? And, um, you know, you get it, Mike. I get it. Mike's a big animal lover. He goes next to this. High school years, and we've talked about this at length, they were brutal. And, um, there were so many times that my life was on the line during high school. And I'm going to tell you, because I think physical pain is not as bad as emotional pain. Scars will heal. Emotional pain, it takes strength to overcome. And this is where Scruffy and I bonded. There were a couple times during high school I had to save Scruffy's life. Some badass were going to kill him for one time jumping on top of him and just don't kill my dog. And during an armed robbery once, Scruffy literally balls of steel. He jumped up and tried to kill somebody to protect the family. He was maybe 10 pounds, but he thought he was a Great Dane. And this little dog, with his courage, it gave us so much strength. Because whenever I was in a battle with somebody bigger, stronger, faster, I thought about Scruff. What would Scruffy do? He would charge. And we protected each other. And I remember the parties in high school. And we were poor, man. We were just dirt poor. And I don't know why I wasn't one at these parties. I was in those cliques. And I remember just not being invited to them. And there was a time... You know, and I'll say Scruffy saved my life. He used to jump up the stairs and go to my room. And there was this one time, man. I don't know. You just about ending it all. We're poor as shit. Don't think I want to get out of there. You're getting tired of getting beaten. It's just, you don't fit into any clique. And you're just sad. You're up in your room and you're watching the horrors at Pitney Village. And Scruffy was brilliant. He knew I was in pain. And he just had a way of coaching you through. 
one of the powerful things about animals is they can't actually speak. And my aunt always had this saying, it was a powerful saying, actions speak louder than words. And Scruffy's love, man, he just, such a synergy. I think if I didn't find him in eighth grade, I might have off myself sophomore year of high school. Things were that bad, but he was that ray of hope. During mock trial, when things turned around junior year, I remember being in my room just practicing my lines with him and going over. It was like, even though he wasn't saying anything, he was listening so intently, and he knew it was important to me, so it became important to him. And um, there was just something special about him. Those high school years were so horrible, and I would not have made it through without Scruff. After high school, things got different. Community college was a tough time for me. I'm trying to play travel baseball, and I'm working the casino full-time. I'm taking 16 credits, and it was just nonstop. And I start working the casino, and your attitude starts to change. You're looking at things differently. You're seeing things differently. You're studying people differently. And it was a tough time because you still don't think you're going to make anything of yourself. And he was always there. Now, he was fixed. But it did not stop his urge to hump things. And one of the things he was in love with was this stuffed Philly fanatic. This is not the Philly Fanatic I have right here, but it's the same thing that Kara got me as a joke a few years ago. This Fanatic was Scruffy's love toy. A very similar one. And what he used to do was hump the Fanatic. Now, my aunt, being a very religious person, there was never sex in our house. And she would scream, oh my god, what's he doing? Stop him! So, Scruff knew that he couldn't hump the fanatic in front of my aunt. But he knew I didn't give a shit. So there's this one funny story that will last with me. One day, I'm in the living room between work in the casino and college. And I'm watching a game and I'm doing my homework and I'm just exhausted. And the fanatic is like up on the couch. And Scruffy looks at me. I know what he wants. He wants the fanatic. He wants to hump it. So I say, yeah, all right, here. So I throw him the fanatic. And I'm doing my homework. And Aunt Mare comes in screaming, what are you doing? You gave him the fanatic. And he's having sex with it. And I say, you know, Aunt Mare, somebody in this house has to have sex. Let the poor guy go at it. She didn't like that too much. It, it, you didn't cross Mary Lee Neary. And jokes did not go both ways. I thought that was funny. Aunt Mare did not. But um, he loved the fanatic. And one of the reasons I got this, I'm not a big doll person, but I'll tell you, this reminds me of Scruff. And it reminds me of my childhood loving the Phillies. And Scruffy loved the stuffed animal fanatic. As we moved to Ventnor, and Ventnor soared to suburbs, okay? Um, it's not Ann Arbor, but it certainly was a major suburb scruff moved with us now at this point he's getting a little older 
when he went to the suburbs, he became like this pampered prince. He was always a good-looking dog. But in the suburbs, there was a groomer right near the house. And Aunt Mare would take my money and take him to the groomer. I say my money because Aunt Mare and I had a rule, right? Her money was her money. And my money was her money. And um, she would take the bill fund to go take Scrubby to the groomer. And when he went to the groomer, he became an absolute snob. He loved us, but he walked around with his nose in the air. He started dating Princess, who was a neighbor's dog. And like he was like dating the suburban dog, going to the pampered pet with his nose in the air, his little bow. And Scruffy was like an aging male model. He was special. And there was no doubt Aunt Mare preferred him. She told me a few times, and I love my aunt. I got her the house. She raised me. She sacrificed for me. But Aunt Mare was very clear with me. Aunt Mare always said, if you were drowning and Scruffy was drowning, I would save Scruffy first because you could be smart to try to help yourself. Okay, thanks for that. I said to her, Aunt Mary, tell me the truth. Who do you love more, me or Scruffy? She goes, well, honey, I adore you, but Scruffy's my favorite. Okay, I get it. I understand. So, as he's getting older, you know, we didn't drift apart at all. It was almost like as I was evolving in life, he was evolving into the suburbs and his personality changed a little bit, but there was always this dire connection, this amazing amount of love. And there's one funny story that comes to mind. One night I'm at a wedding party with three of my friends. It was Q, Scotty Z, may he rest in peace, and my friend Drew. Not the live audience, but a different Drew. And um, we go to this wedding party, and one of my friends, I won't mention which one, it was his ex-girlfriend getting married. And it was like, all right, we're going to this party, and I think it's really weird, right? Now, understand something. When Scotty Z was drunk, he said some weird things. He didn't drink a lot. When Drew was drunk... He was very over the top. Q and I didn't drink, but Q always got real quiet. Hey, Aaron. So, we go to this party, and the bride comes out, right? And she used to date one of my friends. And I swear to you, the guy she was marrying looked exactly like my friend. And I'm sitting there, like, looking at my friend's twin hold this girl and they're showing off the ring and all that. And we get back in the car. Now, Scotty and Drew are drunk. Q's just sitting in the front seat not saying anything. And you know me, right? I'm like, okay, am I the only one that's going to say this? Did she just not marry his twin? What the hell was that shit? And it broke the tension. Like, everybody was thinking about it. I, only, I was the only one that was going to say it. So we get back to my house, and we're like, I don't know, 2021. 20, and um, <laughs> the four of us go back to my house. 
And we're in my room playing Madden, right? And we're all like in our suits and we came from this wedding. And Aunt Mare comes up. And she goes, honey, I need some money. Okay, that was normal. Here you go, Aunt Mare. Here's some cash. Was borrowed any money back then. And she goes, so, how was the party, guys? And Aunt Mare was like the mom to all of us, right? And she could just have a way of controlling the dialogue. And when she walked in the room, this little five-foot-one woman carried such a presence about her. So it's Scotty Z, Q, Drew, me, Aunt Mare, and Scruffy up in my room. And um, and Scruffy, like I said, he was brilliant. So after Aunt Mare gets her money, she says, So, you guys look all really nice tonight. I'm like, oh, thanks. She goes, I can see you must have done really well with the ladies because you're here playing Madden. And she starts laughing. And Scruff goes, woof, 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 like he's laughing too. I'm like, my God. Like, Scruff, you're turning on me here. And Aunt Mare's cracking up, and we're all sitting here. And it's like the four of us, like, holy shit. We're 21 years old, leaving this wedding party, and playing video games by ourselves. Like, apparently we're geeks right now, right? That would change, but okay. And I looked at Scruffy that day, and I said, hmm, I had an idea. And it was a brilliant idea, and it pissed Scotty Z off. When I would walk down the street with Scruffy, women would love to just sit there and pet him. Oh, hi, what's his name? Oh, he's Scruffy. So I realized at this point in life, I'm 21, I'm single. I'm going to use Scruffy as bait. And Scotty Z hated it. He said to me, this is bullshit. You always start conversation with good-looking women because of Scruffy. And I said to him, I'm pretty sure Scruffy's on my side here. Even though Scruffy's my wingman and I'm playing him in this, he's going for an extra walk. He appreciates I saved his life. He wants to see me get with these women. Scruffy's my boy. He understood it. He got really sick um, right before law school. And, you know, it's weird with animals. And you animal lovers out there can get this. Right before law school, I had to put him to sleep. And we had gotten him surgeries and stuff like that. And he... Oh, man. At this point, he was about 15 years old, which is a good life for a Maltese Terrier. But he had seen so much. He had seen me as the poor kid in the ghetto who saved him. He saw me as the suicidal kid in high school that couldn't get the parties. He saw me as the one gentile on the mock trial team. He saw me trying to hang on to a baseball dream. He saw me as a casino worker working hard to get into law school. And he saw me on the cusp of leaving for law school. And it was time to say goodbye. And for those of us that have beloved pets, we know what this is like. And I don't want to get too choked up. It's been a long day. And these blogs kind of make me get in touch with my feelings, which isn't always comfortable. But I will tell you, Aunt Mare could not be in the room, but he had to be put down. And that was on me. And it was about a week or so before I went off the Cooley. And he, it was his time. He wanted to go. And, um, 
you know, we got to be in the room with them. We owe that to them. They give. We're not. We don't deserve dogs. We really don't. But when Scruffy passed away, that little fifteen-year-old had seen so much of my life. You know, he just um, he just looked at me and we, I pet him and hugged him, and I just knew this was the end of New Jersey in a way. And he just looked at me with so much gratitude. And as grateful as he was to me, I am eternally grateful to him. I know I wouldn't have survived without Scruff. Dogs are amazing. And I thought of him today. And I was like, you know, I owe him a blog. Even though it's emotionally taxing. So, Scruffy. Got some crazy things going on next month, buddy. You know what I'm talking about. And when the chips are down, I know you're not physically here, but I'm so grateful I know you're there. And you always will be. Love you, pal. All right, guys. I'm done for tonight. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.